I was diagnosed with early stage form of cancer that threw me for a loop, obviously. And one of the things that happened was I got taken out of consulting at that time. I was actually very, very lucky in the sense that I caught it early, but I was recovering for a number of months. And when you go through an event like that, it really makes you kind of reevaluate everything, your choices up to that point, but also like how you're going to live whatever amount of life that, that you have left. How are you going to live, you know, do that potentially differently? Hey everyone, welcome to episode 110, part one of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Ian Lee, the co-founder of Syndicate, which is a decentralized investing protocol and social network that is backed by the likes of A6Z, Ideo, Kleiner Perkins, Uniswap, Coinbase, OpenSea, Circle, and Ledger. He's also the former founding member of Ideo Collab, and also head of crypto and blockchain at City. Now, Ian's story is divided into two parts, with part two being released this Wednesday because they talk about two very distinct parts of his life. Today's episode centers around the question of how do you measure your life? Because you see, Ian first went to art school because he loved art but soon realized that the world was full of art prodigies and he wasn't one of those. So. What did he do? He pivoted to design, then marketing advertising, then investment banking and consulting before being diagnosed with cancer. Then his world shrunk into three-month increments because he didn't know if he would leave beyond the three-month period each time. As such, Ian's worldview understandably changed. He was and remains unafraid to try new things. We talk about all that and also how Clayton Christensen how professor has influenced Ian's perspective on how 10-year-long life plans don't work and that we should all instead pursue the things that interest us the most in 12 to 18-month periods. If you're trying to find your life purpose or just how to live your life to the fullest, then this is the episode for you. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I thought we would start with a tweet you once wrote where you said very interestingly that you shouldn't plan your life in five to 10 year spans, but that you should actually think in terms of 12 to 18 months. I wonder how you came to that decision. I've always been someone since I was like a child who has been really planful. I was the type of person who would months before a trip or an event or something plan out everything to the nth level of detail. I would create spreadsheets and presentations and documents. And I liked to have that level of detail and certainty with everything. And so that extended to who I was and how I led my life. And one of the things that always bothered me actually was that when I was a kid, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to be in life. Like there were people in my grade, they always wanted to be a lawyer, they always wanted to be a dentist, they always wanted to be a doctor. And I didn't really know what that was for myself. I had a lot of different and seemingly very disparate interests. And I, I didn't really know what to make of that. It came to a head when I had to choose what to focus on in college. And when I was in high school, I was really good at both math and engineering, and then also art. And it's an unusual combination. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people actually, they have multiple talents. It's just that they cut them off pretty early. And, and so somehow I've been able to maintain that up until that point. And I kind of on a whim decided to go into the field of art instead of engineering. So I declined all of these schools that I had applied to and gotten into in the schools of engineering and, and went to school as a fine art major. And that kind of threw me for a big loop. And what ended up happening in the years after that was I first of all realized that actually I made the wrong choice, that there were people in the art world that were infinitely better than me. And, and so what I needed to do was continue to pivot and find my way into things that I was really good at and really passionate about. And the reason I bring up this is because basically from then all the way until I came upon this discovery that, that you referenced, 
I had just been constantly changing myself. I mean, I went from art, then into design, then into marketing and advertising, because that was the only industry that would hire someone with my background at that time. And then from marketing, I learned about finance. And then I went into finance. And then from finance, I went into investment banking, from investment banking to consulting. And then I ended up actually being in consulting. Yeah, I ended up being in consulting for a long time, for almost eight years, because consulting was sort of a playground for people like me, where every two to three months, you were changing the industry and, and the type of work that you were doing. So it was like kind of really good for someone like me who didn't really know what they wanted to do, but just wanted to like learn a lot of things. And it was, yeah, around the age of 30. So this was, you know, pretty much more than 10 years after like making that initial decision to go into art, not engineering, where I was still in, in the area of consulting, you know, hopping from project to project, flying all over the world and going to different industries. And honestly, I had a health situation. I was diagnosed with an early stage form of cancer that threw me for a loop, obviously. And one of the things that happened was I got taken out of consulting at that time. I was actually very, very lucky in the sense that I caught it early, but I was recovering for a number of months. And when you go through an event like that, it really makes you kind of reevaluate everything, your choices up to that point, but also like how you're going to live whatever amount of life that, that you have left. How are you going to live, you know, do that potentially differently? I think many, many people have gone through this in different ways, but not everyone. I mean, I think it takes something pretty serious to kind of be forced to think about this, which I hope most people don't have to like, you know, go through an experience like the one that I did to real come to this realization. There was a good period of time, like years actually, where I didn't know how long I was going to live. Like you would go into the doctor and, and you'd get your quarterly scan to see if like it had spread or if it had metastasize or whatever. And you have no idea like what it's going to say. It could say like, you're fine. It could also say like, it's getting worse. And so literally I was living in three month increments. I mean, it wasn't even 12 to 18 month increments. It was like two to three month increments where I was like, okay, I go through an MRI or whatever. I've passed that MRI. I know I'm okay, but I know I'm okay only until my next scan. Beyond that, I have no idea, right? So when you live in two to three month increments, you start doing things very differently. Like I immediately picked up sailing. So I learned how to sail in a span of two months. I just like went to all these courses. I, you know, sailed every weekend and quickly accelerated in terms of my certifications because I always wanted to sail. So it's just you know, like I, a mental bucket list that you're just ticking off. As yeah, pretty much. much. I mean, just like knocking out as many as I could, right? Well, actually, to be honest, a pretty random sequence. I did other things. I'm trying to remember now at this point. I mean, this was over 10 years ago. I refreshed my programming skills at that point in time. I traveled a bunch. I bought a, a nice car, even though I wasn't into cars. <laughs> like, you just know, so you could say like, you have a car. <laughs> Yeah, there's all these like things that you do. Yeah, you just live differently. Anyone who has been through cancer knows that you go through these scans for five years until you've effectively been become free, I guess, of, of it. And so for five years, I was doing that. And I just like got up, threw stuff in my bag. I had one bag and then I just got up and moved to New York and just all of these things. So like for five years, I was doing this. And that also trickled into like my professional kind of interest. So Instead of holding back on things that I thought were like interesting, but not necessarily good for me professionally, I just instead said, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to like do this because I think it's just the most interesting. And what would happen is like once I went down those rabbit holes, they would lead to new rabbit holes that were just as, if not more interesting. And so I would say, well, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go down that rabbit hole now. What were some of those rabbit holes? Yeah, for me, like being in the area of consulting, I've been working in industries like automotive and aerospace and industrials and things like that, like industrial products, which are super interesting. But I always had this like curiosity, I think because of my engineering background on technology and in particular, obviously like software, software became, became huge, like, you know, when I was in consulting. And so I always kind of like felt that part of me, art plus like math and engineering. 
was like something that I had always missed. And so I kept on like wanting in a way to get into the world of technology. And so it was actually because I was pulled off these consulting projects that I was thrown into this research division of, of the consulting firm to look at the impact of initially software as a service and also artificial intelligence on the consulting industry initially and like how it might disrupt our own business. And then ultimately like the impact of emerging technologies more broadly on the industries in which our clients existed and, and we served. So that kind of was pretty fascinating because it obviously like leveraged a lot of my own knowledge about, you know, our business and, and our industries and the industries that I used to work in, like aerospace and automotive. But it also brought in this like technology software bend to it or lens to it. I just love that. And instead of going back into consulting, I elected to stay in this research arm and kept on kind of researching emerging technologies. Yeah. 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 So I, I worked at Deloitte as a consultant, and then I went into their global innovation office at the corporate level for a number of years. And so, you know, I kept on going down that path. One of the fields that I had studied both in, in business school and then after was this field of disruption theory, basically. When I was in business school, I read this book called The Innovator's Dilemma, which is my number one book, business book of all time, maybe just book of all time. It was written by Clayton Christensen, a former consultant at BCG, professor at Harvard Business School. He was trying to answer this question, which I was obsessed with too, which was, why do companies with infinite resources that achieve a large scale of success perpetually fail over time? Like, Why do they always get disrupted? And that is the title of the book, The Innovator's Dilemma. There's a whole bunch of interesting things there. But basically, that led me into this, this world of technology research, but also innovation research. Very unfortunately, Clayton Christensen, the author of that book, he was alive at that time. He had a stroke, kind of plus or minus a few years, like around when, when I had my incident. It caused him to be partially disabled. He had a hard time articulating himself in the ways that he traditionally had. After that event, he wrote a book called How You Measure Your Life. And this book was interesting to me because it took his research that he had done for decades in the area of the innovator's dilemma and applied it to how to live your life, which I thought was just intellectually fascinating. But the main takeaway for me, at least, and conclusion from the book is he said that essentially the best strategy for a corporation is what he calls an emergent one. And that's actually the, one of the main conclusions from the innovator's dilemma, which is that companies have these like 10-year strategic plans. I mean, I'm not sure if they even do that anymore, but they have these like 10-year strategic plans. And I used to work on those as a consultant, right? Where you like, you have a 2020 strategy or you have a 2030 strategy or 2050 strategy and like everything needs to be planned perfectly to get to that. And what he says is that obviously in a world of, technology and rapid innovation, 10-year strategies become obsolete by year two because the industry is completely changed. And that's a big part of why companies repeatedly fail is that they design for conditions and environments that are no longer relevant. And they don't innovate by doing things that seem stupid at first, but actually are going to become really big. That was the conclusion from his decades of research in The Innovator's Dilemma and he basically said that what companies should do around an emergent corporate strategy is also what people should do with their life. If you don't want to be a dentist or a doctor or something like that, rather than planning out your life in 30-year, 40-year time spans, which I used to literally do and agonize over as in my 20s, just do what you think is most interesting and compelling and you're most energized by over the next like 12 to 18 months. And then just go from there and kind of let go of whatever exists outside of that frontier. And the reason he says that is because if you do that, if you throw your full self into those things, right, because you're genuinely passionate about that, what's going to happen? You are going to learn faster. You're going to work harder and work more than other people, not because it's work to you, but because you just find it interesting, like, you know, you just can't stop thinking about it. And because you're going to be more interested in it, because you're going to grow and learn faster, and because you're going to work harder, 
you're actually going to perform better than other people who are not interested in it. And because you're going to perform better, you're actually going to be exposed to new opportunities and more opportunities than other people and even yourself that you didn't even realize. Meaning it's going to open up new doors and new rabbit holes that you never knew existed if you hadn't done that in the first place. And so when I read that, I was like, two things. I was like, oh my God, I've been kind of doing that all my life from the moment that I decided to go into art and then realized that actually I was, you know, was more interested in something else. I just hadn't done it as deliberately. I had just been agonizing over that process for over a decade. And number two, that when you actually like what, you know, I, I had the historical perspective to see that when you do follow your interests and passions, which I somehow managed to be able to do over that decade, that it ends up leading to better outcomes. And so given all of that and given you know where I was at, at my life, given the situation that I had just gone through, at one point I just said, maybe I should make this my life philosophy and my philosophy to work as well. And once I embraced that, I just said, you know what? Screw it. Like I have no idea where I'm going in life. I might not ever. Let's just go with it. From that point forward, that's that's what I've been doing. So I haven't, you know, had a five-year, 10-year plan. I've never even spent time on that anymore. I've just said that's the most interesting thing. And I'm just gonna go like all into it. And that's from there what led me into joining City Ventures, for example. I was actually like looking at other opportunities, opportunities that I won't name names, but big tech companies that everyone would know. At that time, I was choosing between big tech and city ventures. Actually, like big tech was more attractive. Like it was the right thing to do. It was like it just looked better on your resume. But like I just thought that the problem space that city ventures at the time when I was looking at that opportunity was just more interesting to me. It just seemed more interesting. And so I joined it just because it was more interesting. And that's where I learned about Bitcoin. And then I was like, I don't know, this weird thing called Bitcoin just seems like the most interesting thing to me, even though there's all this other interesting stuff in fintech. Everyone else thinks Bitcoin is stupid and thinks I might get fired by focusing too much on Bitcoin. But I think it's really fascinating. So I just went headfirst into Bitcoin and that just led me to all these series of things. And I just haven't stopped all the way up into today where I founded my own startup in the crypto web three space after all these years. But I had no intention of ever doing that and never planned or, or imagined that this would be where I'd be at this point in time. I so love that was this. a very long answer to your question. No, I but, love that. <laughs> you know, it's been my life. And I actually hope, unless you're like someone that is really set on being a doctor or a politician or something, and you just know that that's your thing. But if you're like me, which I think most people are, then I wish I had learned this in my teens. I often think about what would have happened if I had embraced this earlier in my life. Like how much faster would I have learned and progressed? I mean, you know, I'm happy with where I am right now and I'm doing the best with what time I have left, but I wish I had learned this earlier in my life. So I hope others do too. I love this answer because I've interviewed almost 100 plus people. And I was always driven from the very start of why do you do this and what drives you? And I realized that it wasn't so much that people had a why or even that they cared about them having found a why, but it was the curiosity, the fact that the curiosity mm -hmm. was enough that they just spent so much time in it. They became really good and all these opportunities came knocking on their door. They started it and there was no career path. There was no startup that was fit for their skills. But 20 years later, having done this, there was this perfect startup or this company for them to be perfectly placed to just enter into. I also think that like something that shaped my perspective and a lot of people's perspective is just that you see these success stories of people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, make it to the mainstream in terms of either conversation or like media or whatever. And their histories are narrated in a certain way that makes it seem like from the moment that they were born. Yeah, and always kind of like, yeah, there was always this like straight line. But, you know, once you get older, plus like that was, I think, partially the residual from a previous generation, like our parents generation where, you know, there was a very like kind of tried and true or stable path to success. These days, that's not really the case anymore. 
And so I think that my perception of how you became successful was that you had to have a through line and you had to have like a vision from day one. I think that unless you're in these like kind of specific industries and you have very high conviction in it, for most people, it's actually kind of a myth. I wish I had realized that because I would have lived my life differently. If nothing else, <laughs> even if I had changed nothing about my decisions or the timing of it, at least I wouldn't have agonized over this for more than a decade. And I would have just spent that time, <clears throat> you know, hanging out with friends, grabbing a drink, sitting on a beach and just relaxing and just accepting the fact that no one knows anything. So that in of itself would have been incredibly valuable to me. But even though you said you had this realization of having not to agonize over having a long-term plan, it was still part of your nature, wasn't it? Just to plan, just to know. So how do you reconcile this new way of thinking versus your own innate personality? It's changed. It's rewired even how I work, how I plan. I don't plan as much anymore, actually. And the way I create plans and the plans that I create are very different than the ones that I used to create a decade ago much to the, I guess, chagrin of like my colleagues, you know, I'm very capable of creating like 10-year plans and strategies like it used to, but I don't see the value of them anymore, actually. And so I don't create them. And so the types of plans and the ways that I work now are much more emergent. They mostly focus on first principles, like what is it that I know and believe in and what is it I don't know and don't, don't believe in or don't care about or don't have enough information on. And it really like builds from there. Like what is the little grain that is at the center of things? And just going from there, for example, planning a trip, <laughs> like as minor as that sounds, like I don't create, you know, rigorous spreadsheets anymore. It's just like, okay, there's a destination that we're going to. And there's two or three kind of experiences that I really hope to gain from going there with my friends or family or loved ones or whatever. So I just anchor on those things. And then the rest of it, I just kind of go with the flow. Small examples like that, but it ladders all the way up even to, into more serious work, like company strategies and planning and things like that. Do you not think there is a space for long-term visions? Like even just personally, for instance, I need to plan enough for retirement, something as simple as that. I do think that visions and beliefs about the future and how the world will look and core beliefs about problems that exist in the world and why they're so important and why they need to be solved are very, very valuable. Those are things that people should continue to develop, actually. And that's one of the implicit things that I think I did gain. So there's two things that you do gain from 10 years of working on 10-year corporate strategies. One is the ability to actually articulate long-term problems. And I think that is really, really important. And the second thing is actually on the other end of the extreme, the ability to take a plan and then start to execute on it in the near term. All that stuff in the middle, though, is like not particularly seen, I think, actually. And so instead of learning the whole thing, focus on learning the extremes. Like how do you, you know, execute a strategy or a plan over 12 to 18 months, as I was kind of mentioning? And then also, in addition to that, how do you build conviction around long-term problems and beliefs? For example, in the world of technology and, and entrepreneurship and things like that and starting a company, you do need to have deep conviction in a long-term problem. The caveat, though, is that you, in my opinion, can't be too opinionated or rigid or stubborn about how that problem is going to be solved exactly. And that's where I think like the the difference is, is like, you know, the old me from 10 years ago would actually take that problem and then try to figure out every single step all the way up into that problem. When in reality, actually, like all you can do is build conviction around that problem, identify a plan over the next year to year and a half to start to get you on that path towards solving that problem, but more importantly, learning more about that problem. And then from there, just continuing to fill in the details and continuing to build until you eventually get closer and closer. That's, I think, the difference. You said several times you wish you knew then what you knew now, but would you really have done anything differently apart from the agonizing part? Because you obviously loved art. You had to discover that art design wasn't for you. And then you went to consulting. Clearly, consulting played 
a tremendous role in your career, essentially, in what you're doing right now. So I wonder if you had known what you know now, would you really have done something all that different? Yeah, I mean, I have thought about this and talked about this quite a bit, you know, obviously with family and friends. You know, the one thing that is hard is <laughs> that, like, I really appreciate, obviously, like everything that I've gone through and where I am now. And so to go back and, and change something to potentially jeopardize everything that I've done and now have and where I'm going, that's kind of tough to say, right? It'd be like, would you want to travel back in time and meet your prior self or meet your grandparents or something? But there's a risk that if you like say hi to them, you, know, like, you may not be born. I don't know. It's a hypothetical, unknowable answer. But I do think that all else equal... Yeah, if I had known this earlier, I would have done a number of things differently. Number one, I would have been more decisive, actually. Because like when you're earlier in your life, at least for me, when I was in my early 20s, like going into the work world, you know, everything is new. And I felt like I was experiencing everything for the first time. In my early to mid-20s, I didn't have a lot of experience to have confidence in many situations, right? I was often second guessing myself, my own kind of decisions and intuitions about everything, including for myself, like what I should be doing with my time and what I should be directing my talents and, and energy towards. I do believe that if I had learned this much earlier, let's say in like my teens, I would have built this muscle to actually start to trust my intuition more it may be may still continue to mean that I don't have as much experience or I don't have full confidence, but I would have been able to pick up on my intuition much more. And because of that, I would have been more decisive about following my intuition much sooner. So an example is that, you know, I was in the world of consulting before moving into technology for about a decade. I probably would have moved into technology a lot faster. And by moving into technology faster, I would have gotten closer and closer to, for example, where I'm now at, I believe, which is startups, early stage you know, technology startups, very likely faster in my life than much later in my life. And as an example, like, would that have meant that I would have started a company earlier? Maybe. Would that have meant if I had started a company earlier that I would have for example, had more experience through the growth and development and scaling of a company and potentially exiting of a company and then starting a new company, like maybe. So there's all these kind of like questions. I do think I would have learned faster though, because primarily I would have followed my intuition earlier. You tried so many things and you said following intuition as well, but you also need to know when to quit. How do you know when that time is and what is the best way to quit? <laughs> That's an interesting one because I personally don't like quitting, but... Is it because it feels like failure? No, I'm not afraid of failure. It's more, I'm afraid that I haven't given enough time to succeed. That's the thing that always bugs me. That, that would be the thing that I would regret, which is like that I didn't put in enough effort or enough time to fully explore something, to know whether it was a good decision or not, or to be exposed to the, the other opportunities and rabbit holes that, that it may have presented if I had done that. Those are the things that bother me or, or worry me. It's not like if I had fully explored something and, and I realized that there is nothing here, actually, that's like a win in, in my opinion. The answer to your question actually is both a very difficult one, but also a very simple one. Coming back to that 12 to 18 months emergent strategy thing that I was referring to at the beginning. It's like, what do you find most interesting? Where is your energy pulling you at the moment? If it's pulling you towards something else, then that is your intuition and likely a signal that whatever you're doing currently is not the most interesting and compelling thing that you could be working on. And so people should just listen to their intuition or energy levels. Like if you find yourself at your job thinking about other industries or even just something as simple as like looking at job boards to other companies or other industries, that's like an early sign that like maybe what you're doing is not the most interesting right now. 
if you're reading articles during your breaks or on the nights and weekends about a totally different industry, and you find yourself reading an article starting at 10 p.m. and then because you're so obsessed with something, you can't fall asleep until 3 a.m. That's a signal that there's something out there that is more interesting than whatever you're doing. So over the years, like over the last 10 years, I've become very adept at, at listening to that. Like myself from many, many years ago would look at that and go, like, Ian, that is acting you from your 10-year strategy for the last number of years. When I feel that, I'm like, hmm. I'm actually going to like go even harder into that to go see what's over there to know if that's like real signal or not. So when I get these intuition, that's a signal for me to go further into it as opposed to avoid it. How do you actually lean though? I mean, especially if it's a totally different industry, do you just quit your current job and just jump straight into it? I mean, there must be some, no, some I mean, plans. I mean, another characteristic of me is that I'm not like some folks who are willing to just throw it all away and change everything on a dime. I'm a little bit more deliberate than that. Maybe part of it is my upbringing or something. I'm not really sure, but my disposition, I'm not really sure. But you know, the way that I approach it is to guiding thoughts. So I've made many career transitions in my life. Like, you know, I always talk about how I went from an artist into business. That was not easy. I mean, yeah. I was ridiculed by people when they looked at my resume and they said, wait a minute, like you're applying to an investment bank and you're like an art major, like, why should I even be talking to you? But I made that transition. So I think that like people think that transitions and transformations of themselves and the work that they do, it's number one is a lot bigger than it should be. And number two, that it needs to be like super extreme. Like you need to quit your job and like go do something else immediately where you need to quit your job and go to school or something to like focus on it, then you can go do that thing. I would say maybe like with traditional jobs in the past, if you like want to transition from being an accountant to a doctor, okay, like makes sense. But for most jobs that are not like that in the world, the transition is actually not that extreme. It doesn't have to be a hard pivot on a dime. You can actually increment your way into industries. That's something that I think I've learned over the years, which is like taking a small incremental step and many small incremental steps over time is better actually than taking no big steps. And furthermore, when you are passionate about something, like you really are interested in something, like as I mentioned, like, you know, you just can't stop thinking about it. You're just like obsessing about it. I used to just think about technology and software, like when I was working, I would wonder like, oh, you know, what is Google doing? Like, what is their strategy? As I was working at a helicopter company, when you're passionate about something, it makes taking series of many incremental steps over a long period of time, much easier, right? It's almost like exercise or other things. Let me give you an example. I hate cycling. I just hate cycling or I hate running. I hate, I hate running with a passion. But I do like going to the gym and lifting weights, right? So for example, if I want to exercise, the fact that I'm more passionate about like lifting weights as opposed to running makes taking a series of incremental steps, like going to the gym one day and doing like 15 minutes of weightlifting and then the next day, 20 minutes of weightlifting, that much more easy than, for example, going out and saying, I'm going to go run. So like I'll go run like a quarter mile and then go run a half mile. That is exponentially more difficult than me going to a gym and like just lifting for increments of time. So in that same way, right? If you choose something that you're really passionate about, like let's say you're really interested in crypto or web three, you can just take a series of incremental steps by reading stuff, listening to podcasts, going to virtual or, or physical events, and then just continually taking things bit by bit over time, those things will accumulate to something where by that point in time where you do want to, for example, make a full-time transition or whatever, it doesn't look like you just did it yesterday. It's like, oh, you know, I've done all these things. I've contributed in all these ways to this movement and community. And by that point in time, it seems extremely natural. You mentioned earlier the whole transition from art major to investment bank and being ridiculous. How did you make that transition? 
Because I would have never uh, guessed that you were even into art, given what you put out on your CV. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to be honest, it wasn't until probably the last five to ten years where the field of design, for example, and like artistic sensibilities have become a valuable thing in the business world. That was very much by happenstance. Like I ended up graduating from college with a double major in both design and also economics. These days, like you look at that and you might go, oh, like that makes all the sense in the world. You can do a lot with the combination of design and business. But uh, back then when I graduated from college, it made no sense. Like the business world kind of looked at my design background and said, what the hell is that? The design world said like business has no business in the design world. I think I was like literally the first person ever to graduate with a design major plus something else that wasn't in the area of arts. Oh, you're not concerned during university. You must have realized how strange that was, but you still... Yeah, mostly they were like two different sets of people. <laughs> you know, I had my design and art friends that, you know... Didn't overlap. To, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they went on to like do lots of interesting things like go into the world of furniture or other things. And then I have my business and economics people who became accountants and bankers and consultants and stuff. And yeah, they were just two very different cultures. So I kind of had this like split persona in a way in college. I never merged the two. They were like oil and, and water, you know? So how did I make that transition? Well, I was really good at math. So, so that helped. They, you know, literally like some of these bankers used to test me on math, like in the fly and I would do it fine. And they were impressed, I guess. So that helped. I was very quantitative minded when going into the world of finance, especially as like a junior analyst, they ask you very technical questions. I mean, Ugh, this brings up like kind of scar tissue for me to ask you a common question. Like if a company has $10 million of depreciation, walk through how it impacts every line item across the balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow statement. So as an art major, it would be kind of unexpected for an art major to be able to do that at a very low level of detail with receive, right? So that helped. So what can you learn from that? If you have extensible skills, you have extensible skills. So you should build from that and remind yourself that even if you don't look like you know some, something, that your skills and experience can still be applied as long as you understand the rules of those games. The other thing that I think is an important lesson is that I said earlier that people think that these transitions are a lot like bigger than they actually are. Like when you or I were born or anyone was born, I had this idea where one day I wanted to be an engineer the next day or next week, I wanted to be a garbage man. That was actually like my dream when I was a kid. I wanted to be like no a garbage way. Why? Yeah, it was like cool. You know, I don't know. I liked the trucks and like it was really cool. That was my dream when I, everyone else was like, I want to be a president or an astronaut. I was like, I want to be a garbage man. That was unexpected. Um, yeah, I really I wanted to operate the the garbage truck. Our ability to mentally project ourselves as a doctor and then the next day a lawyer and the next day an accountant was very like fluid. We could mentally shift ourselves. Like we could even tell our parents or tell our friends one week where I'm like, I'm going to be a doctor. And then the next week, I'm actually going to be a business person, right? But as you get older, the time delay between saying you're one thing and or thinking you're one thing and thinking you're another becomes very, very long actually. Like you form these thoughts where it's like, oh, I'm a X right now. And the world thinks of me as X right now. And to become Y, it's going to be a three-year transition. And I don't think that's the case. Like I was able to pivot from art to advertising, to marketing, to finance, to consulting in a span of like all of that in a span of like two to three years. And the way that you realize you do that is actually through communication, both verbal and written, which is that people perceive you based on how you communicate. So for example, when I was going into finance interviews as an art major, if I had communicated myself as, hey, I'm a painter, I love painting, but I'm also interested in finance. And I just want to try this thing out. And my skills might apply because I don't know, I'm really good at like creating new things. Like that's not the optimal way to communicate to 
an investment banker. So purely just through changing the way I would communicate and changing the way even I showed up in terms of my written communication, like my resume and stuff, and just reframing, I would say, how my ex- what my experiences mean and how they might apply to a, a different industry makes can make a world of difference immediately, not in three years, not in a year, but like literally immediately, which is, for example, what I would go in with is I would reposition my really small things like reposition my resume, where instead of highlighting fine art at the top, I would actually highlight these business organizations, like these business uh, student clubs that I joined, right? And center kind of the conversation and my resume around that. And then when I talked about like what I did, right? So by the time I, I was applying to finance jobs, like investment banking jobs, I had experience in advertising, you know, and marketing at that point in time, and a little bit of exposure to marketing strategy, which actually does include financial planning and budgeting because you set up like media strategies and stuff like that. And you have to like allocate a budget and stuff like that. So instead of describing it as like, for example, I'm a marketer and like, I know how to create marketing plans. And therefore, because I'm so good at marketing, I will be good at finance. I would instead frame it as I was exposed to financial planning and analysis through media planning. And through that, I've acquired skills in terms of financial analysis, financial planning. I even created like a discounted cash flow statement for something that I was working on. And that is my passion. And that's why I'm most interested in finance, right? And oh, by the way, I'm an art major. <laughs> I happen to be an art major, right? And an art major is, is useful because it allowed me to think very creatively about how things connect. But oh, by the way, like I have these test scores in math and and so on, right? So that you know that like I I can at least like do the basics. That what I just described to you, that transformation in terms of the framing of your experience and your background and your interests, I literally just did in, in you know the last minute. People can do that for themselves in ways that are you know immediate and much faster than, for example, as I mentioned. This idea that you leave your job, you go to school for a number of years to make a career transition and then enter a new industry. I think that things can be done in a lot faster and a much more incremental way. And likely as a result of the speed, make a lot bigger of an impact over time. The fact that you were so aware of how to basically present yourself when you were just starting your career is remarkable. I wonder if you were also getting advice from people around you. Who were telling you this is the way that you should present yourself. And by extension, how do you find the right people around you to basically support you in what you're doing? Like mentors, for instance, is always a big mm. topic that people are interested in. Yeah. Unfortunately, so so one thing that's interesting is like I actually didn't have people coaching me. Wow. When I was making that early transition in my life, which was actually both a blessing and a curse. I mean, I, I think I would have greatly benefited from mentors. I think. I didn't know how to seek out, seek them out. I didn't know where they were. I didn't even know who they were because people would look at my background like art and they would immediately, again, like write me off. They'd be like, this person's not going to make it. So the way I learned was I literally went to career fairs <laughs> at college. There are always career fairs at college universities. And I would go to every single one of them. And what I would do is... I would print out actually multiple resumes with different ways of positioning myself to different industries. And I would literally like beta test or AB test different resumes and different pitches to different companies and industries, every career fair. And at first it was really scary actually, because literally like the first, you know, several career fairs that I went to, I would get rejected by everyone. <laughs> they would look at my resume and within a second just go like, oh, nice to meet you. Like, and then turn away. Right. That was very frightening and, and very demoralizing. Like th- there were many moments where I was like, I should probably just give up. But uh, you know, what I did was it started turning into a bit of a challenge for me. Like 
the next career fair, I would go, okay, like, well, that didn't work. So what if I just changed one word on my resume? Or if I just changed a couple words and I maybe if I made it a little bit different. And so the next career fair I would go to, I would talk to like 50 people and I'd only get rejected by 49 of them. And I'd be like, hmm, that's like progress. And then the next time I would iterate again. And then it'd be like, okay, 10 of them are actually like taking an interest in me and then so on and so forth. And so career fairs were actually like an amazing experimentation ground for me to constantly transform and innovate myself and innovate my message and framing in very rapid succession and in a very intense way, right? There's like hundreds of booths, hundreds of people. And each time you can just try and try again, talk to someone, doesn't work, go somewhere else, try something different, even go back to the same booth and talk to someone different who's on a different shift and see if that works, right? So I would literally do that hundreds and hundreds of times over several years to the point where I became, I think, very skilled at it purely out of necessity and and the desire to get even like one job. And at one point, someone randomly took a bet on me that led to a bunch of things. Now, once I ended up finding a job, then I started getting mentors through the managers that I had worked with. And that was incredibly helpful. You know, I, I had my first professional mentor was actually in the marketing area. He was an ex-McKinsey consultant. He's like, oh, I, we used to work at McKinsey. I was like, I, I've never heard of that company. <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. I actually didn't even know, know many years later that it was McKinsey, but he exposed me to things. You know, he exposed me to financial models. He was like, you know, hey, look at this thing. Like, do you want to work on this? I was like, I don't know. Sure, whatever. And then when I went into finance, you know, there were a lot of people that actually I didn't want to be mentors, but there was one who actually like gave me a number of mental tools and, and things that I've carried with me throughout my entire life. And then eventually, you know, once you land somewhere, especially full time after college, I was fortunate enough to have a mentor that has been really like one of my most important mentors throughout life, even a decade after I left the company, where he sh- he literally shaped how I think and how I work in those formative years and, and helped me really kind of build confidence and build intuition. And so I would say over, over the course of my life, I've probably had anywhere between five to 10 very important mentors, which I think I was actually quite, I'm quite a bit. It's interesting because now, now that I'm older, I'm fortunate enough to have a number of men, like life mentors who were kind of professional mentors, but now they're older. Some of them are even retired, but they're like kind of more coaching me these days, less on career and more on life, which is very valuable. Professionally, I find that a lot of my mentors are actually my peers or even people that are younger than me. And I have a lot to learn from them professionally. So the way I seek mentorship and the way I get mentorship and the type of mentorship that I get has changed a lot. It's no longer kind of like a single role model figure, but it's actually just kind of a network and a community of peers and even people younger in their careers that I can learn from. And that network and that community and fostering that and cultivating that and building that in a way that is actually like very complementary, you know, where the people in that network are not all the same. They actually have different skill sets, backgrounds, perspectives, life journeys. It's actually the composite of all of those people that makes things very valuable for me because I feel like I can learn a hundred X more than just from one person. And, uh, you know, when you, when you get older in your, you know, later in your career, and also these days, given how complex kind of the world is and how complex the problems are, you need as many skill sets and experiences and expertise and, and mentorship as possible from an array of industries to be successful these days. So that's how I think about mentorship now. How do you effectively foster these mentorship relationships? Since I'm sure they are very busy as well. And so time is valuable. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people have different philosophies in terms of how to do this. And they tweet a lot about it. For me personally, it's always started from a relationship where it's more like a friendship, like a mutual friendship in a way, which again, can be with peers or people much younger than me, where we just connect and bond on something we start to care for each other as people, like human beings. Like I care about you, you care about me, you want me to succeed, I want you to succeed. 
And it starts from this place of kind of caring about that person and wanting to help them do well and achieve what what they want to achieve. So, you know, they do that for me, I do that for them. And it just kind of grows and nurtures into this, you know, very kind of beautiful relationship where there's things that I'm able to help them with. And there's many things that they're able to help me with. And I think that in in some ways, right, like on their side, they feel like I'm providing 10x more value than they're giving me. But it feels like that to me. Like it feels like they're providing 100x more value to me than I'm giving to them. And just like kind of that repeated interaction and repeated kind of development of those relationships over time just become really deep. And at this point, I would say that that community for me is, you know, actually quite large. Like there's probably at least 20 to 30 people currently that I would say I, I have that with at a pretty strong level in different ways, but those relationships are extremely valuable to me and important to me. Beyond just the professional thing, it's because I actually genuinely want them, even if I get nothing from them, because I've already gotten so much, I just genuinely want them to be successful and be happy, right? And if I can contribute in any way possible, like I'll do that. And I I think that that ends up kind of reciprocating in the end. And that was the end of episode 110, part one. The show notes can be found at sodismyway.com forward slash 110. And do stick around for this Wednesday because we will be meeting in again for part two. And this time it deals with all things Web3. How Ian got into banking, was tasked with finding out about this thing called Bitcoin, why Ian believed in it so much he kept pushing it forward in city, even though he was at risk of losing his job, how he then ended up being the head of crypto and blockchain at City, why he left, and what he's trying to achieve at his current Web3 company, Syndicate. It's a great episode, so do stick around. And please, if you haven't done so already, please do leave a rating and review for this episode and the entire podcast on whatever platform that you're listening to this on. Because honestly, every rating helps this podcast to grow and it's so hard to get the word out on what's happening on Steamy. So your help would be greatly appreciated. Now that's over me and see you this Wednesday.